I'm Seth. And I'm Jonathan. And welcome to No Experts Allowed. You know what we love? The Bible. You know what we don't love? When people use the Bible to scare or hurt others instead of allowing it to transform them and their communities. So we're trying something different. Two Bible nerds hosting a podcast that isn't about technical details, but is about two simple questions. What's the story and what's the point? One of us will prepare for the conversation. Let's call them the non-expert. The other will respond to the story as they hear it. We'll call them, and you, the storyteller. So we can show you that you don't need to be an expert to hear the Bible speak to our world. Join us. Let's tell a good story today. Seth, it's a beautiful day in the neighborhood, isn't it? It's good to see you. It is, Mr. Rogers. You're wearing a nice sweater. Just I am. like. Mr. I'm wearing Rogers my sneakers, himself. too. My house oh, sneakers. That's classic. Mr. Rogers is incredible. Yes, he he's a so Presbyterian minister. Yeah, if you're trying to insult me, the fact no, that you're calling no, no. me a Presbyterian is the only aspect <laughs> of that that I would maybe consider it an insult. But I think I would still look past it. Are you doing all right? Yeah. Yeah, I'm having a good Valentine's Day, which is when we're it's recording true. this for our listeners. Yeah. I know. Seth and I are spending a lot of time together on Valentine's Day, which is both sad and appropriate for our yeah. relationship. Sure. Uh, <laughs> yeah. And I can think of nothing more fitting for us to do this Valentine's Day, Seth, than for me to pop a particular question. What would you do <laughs> in this particular situation? Would you want to have to use a GPS with an Adam Sandler voice every time you drove even if you didn't need directions, or never be able to use a GPS again? I think I'd have to use the GPS with the Adam Sandler voice. <laughs> because <laughs> I can't believe anybody got anywhere that was like outside of their town before GPS. Yeah, I know. Like It's amazing. It's <laughs> like, And I get that people like stopped... At gas stations and stuff and asked for directions but i was like i still don't know how they actually got to like the actual destination right like right. i feel like that would only get you close like the gas station yeah. clerk can only point you in the right direction and you gotta right. get, actually get where you're going you gotta find the road the number exactly. everything yeah yeah we used to have a big atlas in our car for when we went on trips and we would literally sit down each night like map out everything along the way. I don't know. I I should clarify. I was thinking of an Adam Sandler GPS that like rotates between his typical character voices of like Happy Gilmore, <laughs> the Water Boy, like. So it's not monotone oh, Adam Sandler. Yeah, I kind of like that more. That I'm I'm doubling down on my pick. It would uh, it would get irritating, but it is hard to think about not doing it. That's just how dependent we are. <laughs> Can you imagine have... going in to the gas station now and asking for directions? And everyone's like, why don't you just use the GPS? Yeah, the person would just literally look up, look it up on their Hold phone. Their phone. <laughs> <laughs> this is similar for me of like, there's part of me that wants to give up the GPS. It's similar to, there's a song, we play the doxology every week in our church. But I still need, like, I've been playing it every week for a year and a half. 
same arrangement, everything. And I still need the music in front of me because I'm afraid that like I'm going to miss one important thing if I don't yeah. have it there. <laughs> Even though I've played it so many times. And that's how I feel about the GPS. It's like most places I go, I feel totally comfortable going there. But if I make one wrong turn, I'm just going to end up in the middle of like Shenandoah National Park or <laughs> at the beach or something. And it's just going to turn out really badly. So I think, yeah, it sounds like both of us are going to have some Adam Sandler GPSs. That sounds like a good investment. I'm interested <laughs> to see how this is related to our it text. May, it may or may not be explicitly related. We'll okay, see. That's fine. But are you ready, are you ready to read uh, the first part of our psalm tonight? Sure, I'd love to read our psalm for us today. This is Psalm 25 from the Ecumenical Grail Psalter of David. To you, O Lord, I lift up my soul. In you, O God, I have trusted. Let not my enemies exalt over me. Let none who hope in you be put to shame. But shamed are those who wantonly break faith. O Lord, make me know your ways. Teach me your paths. Guide me in your truth and teach me. For you are the God of my salvation. I have hoped in you all day long. Remember your compassion, O Lord, and your gracious love, for they are from of old. Do not remember the sins of my youth, nor my transgressions. In your gracious love, remember me because of your goodness, O Lord. Good and upright is the Lord, who therefore shows the way to sinners, who guides the humble in right judgment, who teaches God's way to the humble. All the paths of the Lord are gracious love, and faithfulness for those who keep the commandments of the covenant. That was great. Tell us, before we start, why you chose the ecumenical grail Psalter. Sure. I might start sounding like a broken record here, but whenever we visit the Psalms, I love translations that focus on rendering the Psalms as poetry and as songs. And ecumenical grail Psalter is one of those translations um, from the Benedictine monks of Conception Abbey that does just that. It renders the Psalms to be as lyrically consistent and poetic as possible. And honestly, too, and as I was comparing translations, there's not too much variation, too much significant variation on the Psalm. So I wanted to make that, that focus explicit for us. But as you read through those first 10 verses of the Psalm, which is admittedly a little bit longer, what were some of the things that stood out to you? I'm sure this is just because of our what would you do in this particular situation question. But the language about teach me your paths, guide me, and all of the paths of the Lord are gracious love and faithfulness. Those all stuck out to me. And I kept hearing them in Adam Sandler's voice, which like made it a little bit harder to hear them as as part of the psalm but <laughs> guide me in your path yeah that was good that was really good thanks i appreciate it but either way this language of guiding i think is is particularly powerful here it's like it's all through this at least this section of the psalm that we read yeah absolutely that theme was kind of central to what i picked up on in this first part thus the question but I I really appreciated how this this section of the psalm 
begins to introduce a couple of different ways that psalms normally turn up throughout the entire Psalter. So this is this is usually classified as a psalm of supplication, which indicates that the psalmist is suffering in some way and requests God's intervention. But we also get to, and we, we miss some of this based on the section of the psalm we didn't read, there are also some elements in this psalm that seem to make it more of an a psalm seeking forgiveness, one mm-hmm. where the psalmist has realized the wrong they've done. Yeah, they've already and are seeking. Up. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so rather than rather than everyone's against me, or being just focused on that kind of the world's out to get me. God intervene on my behalf. It's also God forgive me for what I've done so that you will intervene <laughs> on my behalf. <laughs> and and I, I think I just highlight that to highlight how personal and specific this psalm and all the psalms really are. They were crafted for a worship context, but they came out of specific situations and ideas and I think you really get 150 different tones and different human experiences from the 150 psalms. And I especially love how the psalms include, although this one isn't, include several expressions, almost a third of them, that are psalms of lament. Psalms that are expressing anger at God, questioning God. The The breadth of the human experience in the psalms is always so powerful to me, and I think the specific narrative of this psalm stands out for that reason too. Have you ever read Walter Brueggemann's The Spirituality of the Psalms? I haven't, no. I love that book. It's one of the books that I lent out and I didn't get it back, which means it's a good book. Yeah. It's also disappointing because I didn't get it back. (laughs) He breaks down the psalms not, I guess, as form criticism does. But he says there are really three types. There's psalms of orientation, disorientation, and new orientation. Mm -hmm. Which I think is is like a maybe a more helpful way for me at least. I I confess to never being able to remember all the like seven different right. types of psalms. Yeah, and sometimes so it depends like, on who you ask as well. But I've I've heard I've yeah, definitely heard that classification too, and I I think I would at least identify this as a psalm of new orientation that the psalmist has gone through some stuff has done some stuff themselves yeah, yep. and is and is looking to kind of get their feet back under them. And take those next steps back on God's path. That's something that's very clear that they want God's guidance in this. The other thing that's really interesting, I didn't realize, uh, to mention another old white guy. I didn't realize this until looking at Robert Alter's translation of this passage. Uh, but this is actually one of the psalms that's an acrostic in Hebrew. So the whole psalm... Uh, almost entirely it doesn't quite fit with every letter but the first line of each couplet in the psalm starts with the consecutive letters of the hebrew alphabet so something about like many of these things when you translate from the original language you miss some of that some of that beauty some of that careful crafting that went into the original Uh, and we often lose that in the language sometimes the ways that we render things don't sound the same way or don't carry the same kind of artistic or poetic weight as they might have in Hebrew. Uh, but here we, we see actually a part of the form 
that's lost in translation yeah. too. So I wanted to highlight that to really emphasize how carefully crafted, like I said, this psalm and many psalms are, and how paying attention to that just allows us to garner a little more appreciation for what we're encountering here. That's helpful. Do you? Th- yeah, I'm gonna ask you a question. Okay. Do you think? Do you think there's a reason that old white dudes gravitate toward the Psalms? <laughs> Sorry. I don't know. I mean, to be clear, there are many. There's also young white dudes who gravitate. Yeah, like us. I was gonna say, to be clear, there are plenty of scholars on the Psalms who aren't old white dudes. Uh, yeah, but agreed, agreed. I, I think uh, Dr. Hopkins, my my professor at uh, Wesley is one of the foremost psalm scholars in the Hebrew Bible field today. And she is not an old white guy, so props to her for that. <laughs> um, Dr. Hopkins, if you happen to listen to this episode, I'm so sorry. Uh, <laughs> well, I, I'm just so appreciative of the breadth of our tradition. And I think we often lose that by solely focusing on authors like Bergman and Alter when we have others like Kelly Brown Douglas and, and other prominent womanist scholars from the new Testament scholars like Shively Smith, you know, we've got just this, we do have a breadth of resources and we're selling ourselves short when we don't dive deeper into those beyond our own tradition. There was a Twitter thread from the, the author and theologian, Carol Howard Merritt the other day, where she talked about working in a Methodist bookstore and how the categories labeled theology and biblical studies are only reserved for the the white authors. And there were sections on feminist theology or black biblical studies or things like that, but they were all their own subsections. They were all on the lower yeah. shelves. And we're, we're experiencing, I think, a a call to the carpet of sorts of how we've mm-hmm. classified our theology and our, and our theological studies. And I think for the better, I think we are, we are trying to reassess because so often the voices associated with our dominant understandings of theology are not actually relevant or connected to the types of experiences of oppression that are lifted up and celebrated in celebrated in terms of like amplifying the voices of those experiencing that oppression there's a disconnect there and much like some of the things we talked about are lost in language translation there are also things lost in cultural translation that a variety of experiences can help unlock and help us understand in the scripture and we're missing out on that if we don't embrace those different approaches to the text my soapbox is over (laughs) yeah I'm just trying to think how to phrase this. So old white dudes aren't particularly drawn to the text. We just hear about the old white dudes who are drawn to the Psalms. Yeah. But is I that, think is that a summary of, of what I you're think, saying. I think it is more it is both symptomatic and Yeah, it's like the cause and the sim right? Yeah, it's is both that, symptomatic and central to the problem. Yeah. of how racial inequity has played out in even in our educational system. There are more white men 
who have attained PhDs, not because of their ability to achieve them, but because of the additional opportunities available to them to take those steps in achievement and the longevity of periods that those opportunities have been open to them and not to others. Yeah, I don't know if it's a draw to them specifically or if it's just there are more voices and more voices that we've been for a long time directed to pay attention to. Mm-hmm. That was that was helpful. Yeah, I'm not sure either. I mean, there, there may be more voices, if only because of the way that they've been privileged historically. Yeah. Right. Oh, sorry. That was an aside to what we were yeah. talking about. So now, if I if I can. <laughs> I think we're at a point where we can we can actually shift to a conversation about what's the point of this psalm or what's a point of the psalm. And actually, Seth, the question I wanted to, to explore was related to what you brought up right after you finished reading this. And simply think about the question, how do we know if we're on God's way or God's path? So it seems something that's pretty important to the psalmist. But what do we... What do we use to identify when we're actually following God the way that God has intended? It seems like it's both a combination of our own kind of internal understanding and the way that others push us, encourage us, shape us, correct us when they think we're not on the path, right? Yeah. In the in the same way that the GPS reroutes you when you make a wrong turn. I think those are always together that we can we can head in the right direction. Yeah. If not if not follow the path to its letter, right? Yeah. Like hmm. Yeah, I, this is like a hard question. It's especially hard and complicated I think when when one person feels so strongly that they're following God's yes, path absolutely. and the people around them are encouraging them and then there's someone on seemingly exactly on the opposite side who thinks the same and they have people encouraging them to do yeah. the opposite <sighs> yeah. yeah I know I can certainly personally identify with that example <laughs> I think we've seen that example maybe not in a faith perspective but for some yeah I'm sure in the votes in Trump's second impeachment trial. You know, how many people voted yeah, yeah. their voted their conscience? Or even just thinking about the election more broadly, there are folks on all sides of this political spectrum <laughs> that identify their faith, identify following God as their primary motivator for why they vote the way they do or why they spend their money the way any of these things. And it, it to me really gets at and challenges the assumption that while it might be the metaphor that's used throughout the Psalms, especially this one, that the idea of a path that God has a singular path Mm -hmm. is not a helpful metaphor all the time for thinking about how we relate to God. I don't necessarily have a better one, <laughs> but I think my biggest challenge with it though, in addition to the, the problems that we've already identified is we often conflate God's path with God's own presence. 
And so when we've strayed from God's path, we talk about being far from God, that we've turned our back on God, that we've distanced ourselves from God. And for me, at least, that stands in tension with a lot of my theology about God, (laughs) who I believe is love and is always ready and patient and has open arms to receive us at any moment. And so that really important theology to me of God's loving presence seems to stand in contrast with some of these ideas about, are you on God's path? Because, you know, maybe God's a companion on the path. Okay, that could help. Sometimes, though, it talks about how, like, God is the destination only. Uh, And it's like, this is the path to God, and we need to make sure we're following it very clearly. I I would honestly argue, though, that, like, God is both the destination and the journey or the process. Yeah. But even, even in saying that it feels like the idea of a path, the idea of the pilgrim's progress to cite the the centuries old book, more old white guys. Dang it. It doesn't, it doesn't always help us get at what we're trying to get at when we're asking for God's guidance. Can we come up with a better question? That's that's an open-ended question, I guess. But but if I'm understanding you right, and I think I agree that am I on the right path? Like, it's just not a very good question. It's too specific. Like, even the assumptions in the question, right? That yeah. there's a path. And that you that could find I it can, in the first place. Yeah, right? that I could just, like, divine it somehow, <laughs> yeah. right? Like, yeah. Yeah, I... I think too highly of God to think that God would throw us like lab rats into the maze and trust us to try to figure things out and hope we find the cheese at the end. You know, it. I'm probably being a little too cynical about the metaphor, but I think we both know that in some theological circles, that's ultimately how it plays out, that God has set a course, a course, and it's our job to figure it out. In, and using language that often leaves us feeling distanced from God and from our communities. Because whenever you feel like you're struggling to find that path, you feel like there's something wrong with you, that you're not praying enough, you're not holy enough, whatever it is. God always seems to say something different to that, though. Like, what question could you ask kind of to, to figure out if you're even on the right? I don't want to say path. If but, you're even like in, I don't know. I, I guess even if, even maybe if God, that's even not, a, yeah, maybe that's not even a good way to think about it. Like, obviously we're not, we don't want to try to go on the wrong path, you know, but if God's a gracious God, there is, there is hope. There's the opportunity to return to God for forgiveness and restoration when we realize that we're not on the right path. Not if we stray, But when we recognize that the way we've been doing things is not the right way, it almost seems like the inevitable change of direction of some sort that we're, we're working our way closer and closer to the right direction, but we're always going to find that we're just a few degrees off. Mm -hmm. And that, Mm -hmm. that actually is some language that's been really meaningful for me in my past. That's the type of, 
language we use during my study abroad semester in Uganda, where Abby and I met, the idea of one degree changes, you know, changes that aren't necessarily going to revolutionize the entirety of the way that you think, but are significant enough to change your direction in a degree or five degrees even, that in the moment may feel relatively insignificant. But over time, two lines that are separated by a five degree angle can end up miles or worlds apart. Mm-hmm. And those changes are significant. They happen to us all the time. And so maybe that's getting us a little bit closer to something we can think about for a little bit more helpful of a question for us to think about how we can seek out God's guidance on the long stretch of our lives. This is my pet peeve. I don't know if I've ever, I don't think I've ever talked about it on our podcast. I hate when people, this is kind of directed at parishioners, say that pastors guilt them into something. Hmm. Because I often think that what they're actually experiencing is is the difference between how they know they should be acting and how they recognize they've actually been acting. And I don't, guilt, I think, is so negative. I call that growth. Like when you recognize, right, what hmm. what degree you maybe could be on, right? And then, oh, I, you know, I've been going this direction, but I need to turn a degree. Well, that's yeah. not, that's not terrible, right? That's growth. So I don't know. That's yeah. my pet peeve when people are like, they guilted me into it. I'm always like, oh, they helped They helped you see w- the difference between how you should be acting and how you've been acting. How dare them? That's terrible. Right? Like, <laughs> I don't want to argue with you about your pet peeve since you want to, since it's your pet peeve. I want to, I want to protect that for you. So no, that's okay. That's no, just... I think, but I, I think Seth, you're right that there are constantly these moments where by someone's words or by our own realization, we just come to understand that the way things have been going is not going to work for us. And honestly, I feel like the question, how do we know we're on God's way, is so focused on what we're not doing. It's like assuming that there are some characteristics that we're missing out on and leaving ourselves short of honestly acknowledging the worth and the value and the beauty of the way we've been going the entire time. It hasn't been perfect, but it has still been one that I I would say a journey with God is worth taking, even if it's not what you expect. And so maybe instead of the question of how do we know we're on God's way, maybe the question can instead be something like, what way are we going? Something that grounds us in our present moment, helps us examine where we've been coming and think about where we may be going and say, does this feel in line with the way of the kingdom of God, with the way of Jesus, with the life of the spirit? And maybe there's a way we can recognize a different next step, a different direction we can take, you know, as a United Methodist. I am supposed to believe about the journey to Christian perfection (laughs) that not that we will get everything down and never make a mistake, but that the love of God and the love of neighbor will be perfected in us. And there's possible, there's the possibility of that 
even in this lifetime. Well, that's so optimistic compared to Luther. Uh, that's for sure. <laughs> uh, that's so optimistic compared to me most days too. But hey, I, I still think it's I still think it's a powerful belief though, because it constantly asks us to stop and examine where we've been, what we're doing, and where we're going. Because it acknowledges not that perfection is achievable and is the standard, which is a harmful, a harmful belief, <laughs> but that growth is always possible. Those moments of growth that you were identifying are always not just possible, but necessary for us to continue evolving in our life with God and in our communities. So maybe that's it. What do you think? What way are we going already? That kind of question instead. Yeah, I like that a lot more. I think that's a. I think that also recognizes where we've been, somehow, which I yeah. which I want to do, right? Like where, because where we've been, just like you were talking about, is is sacred, right? We we don't want to we don't want to erase that. That's part mm. of the story too. So we have to keep both where we've been and where we are, and I guess that's really the challenge, right? And then to look forward, <laughs> it's like, yeah. And to look forward without losing where you've been is difficult. I think we've got something we can work with there, Seth. I like it. Me too. I think, as an aside, I see your historian coming out a little bit. Thinking about where we've been, where we are, right? And how that influences maybe where, we, where we're going. You know what? Between, between my major in college and my strengths finder strength of context which is literally doing that it's a big part of my life (laughs) well can i pray for us i would love that great let's pray to you oh god we lift our souls we trust in you help us remember that even if we feel far from your way that we are never far from your love forgive us constant one Mindful of the many names by which your children cry out to you from all over the world, I pray in the name of the one who walks with us, no matter what way we're going, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. To our listeners, thanks for joining us. Be sure to subscribe and tune in for our next episode. Seth, what story will we look at next week? Next week, we're talking about Mark 8, verses 31 to 38. Jesus tells Peter, get behind me, Satan. Oh, nice. But, in, but until then, leave us a review and find us on Twitter and Instagram to continue the conversation. Thanks for walking us through that story, Jonathan. Thanks for helping me tell it. <laughs> <laughs>